When I have said all the words, what shall I do? When all the rhymes are paired and I have sung, whatever tunes are nested in my tongue, and have made all the promises false and true. When the sonnets are written and the night burns black to moonset and bright to sunrise, and dawn strikes like murder at my aching eyes with its intolerable bruise of light. Always, after the praying and the poor gabble of sobs and the twisting in the lonely bed and the clever spider webs I weave in my head to catch you with, I sit down at my table and stare at nothing, neither God nor you. Sir, at the end of words, what shall I do? Sonnet 14 by Joy Davidman Callahan, and this is Behind the Scenes of Becoming Mrs. Lewis, an in-depth exploration into the improbable love story of Joy Davidman and C.S. Lewis. You'll hear the stories behind the stories of the best-selling novel Becoming Mrs. Lewis, along with interviews from some of the foremost experts on their lives and love. I think that Lewis's one blind spot, and isn't it true of all of us, is himself. And I think that maybe he didn't see himself as clearly as perhaps Troy Davidman did. He wasn't at all dishonest, but he presented a public face and had his own private world, and he was a very private person. And I think that she really did kind of reach inside of him and help him to see clearly. There's even a couple of poems about it. Episode 7, Surprised by Love, How Love Found C.S. Lewis with Andrew Lazo. Today, we're going to discover some beautiful backstory with Andrew Lazo about Joy and Jack's love story in the context of their work and how C.S. Lewis was totally surprised by love. C.S. Lewis expert Andrew Lazo is a speaker, scholar, and author on the life and work of Lewis and his circle. His recent work sheds groundbreaking new light on Joy Davidman and her collaborative role in Lewis's last and best novel, Till We Have Faces. Andrew currently lives in Alexandria, Virginia, with his wife, Kristen, herself a best-selling author on the Chronicles of Narnia. Hello again, Andrew. The last time we talked, we discussed how the love story between Joy Davidman and C.S. Lewis contributed to some of Lewis's greatest works, most notably Till We Have Faces. Now let's dive a little deeper into their love story. We all know that Jack was completely surprised by the concept of joy, so much so that it is the title of his autobiography. But he was also surprised by Joy the person, Joy the spirited woman who blew into his life, and then he was surprised by love. Now, I think Joy Davidman clearly is in love with him by then. She's already written him a whole series of sonnets. In fact, the love sonnets stop in 54, and maybe not coincidentally, writing Till We Have Faces happens in early 1955. 
Maybe at this point, C.S. Lewis knows that he loves her, but I don't think he's willing to admit it to himself until 1957, where she gets the cancer diagnosis. I've talked with a famous psychologist, Larry Crabb, about this in Cambridge at a Lewis conference, and I said, could Lewis have fallen in love as early as 55 and compartmentalized it so he didn't even admit it to himself until much later? And Larry said, certainly, that could very easily have happened for Lewis and for most men. And not only could that be true, and it probably is from his work and from his writing, but I also think that when you are working that closely with someone on a story about love and about the true self and about how we reveal ourselves to each other, you must in some way already love them deeply. Absolutely, without any question. And it's been noted by more than one scholar, including you, that Till We Have Faces is a combination of Lewis's increasing tendency to centralize and also empower strong female characters in his fiction. So let's talk about that for a minute. Do you think Joy changed any of his portrayal of women in fiction? Did his love for her and the relationship change any of that? Or do you feel that that empowerment started back with Dorothy Sayers, back with his mother, or even further— Well, whatever it is, it's obvious that he had an increased tendency to empower women inside his work. That's a great question. And um, you mentioned love, and I want to return to that in a few minutes. Now, do you remember who the dedicatees of The Horse and His Boy are? David and Douglas Gresham. So by the time, at least, that he dedicates that book, Joy Davidman's on the scene. And, you know, as you've mapped out, the timeline is pretty clear. They first started exchanging letters in... What year was that? 1950. She wrote her first letter to him from what we know in 1949, and he answered her in January of 1950. And that is when their three-year pen friendship began. Well, and that friendship progressed pretty quickly because by September or so of 1952, he's on a first-name basis with Joy Davidman. Now, we know that it took almost a a decade for him to get on a first-name basis with some other female correspondents. But with Joy Davidman, she has him calling him Jack early on. And that suggests the rapidity of intimacy of their friendship early on. You've mentioned before that she allowed him to see himself more clearly. Do you think that she let him see himself and his work more clearly, not only making him more who he is as a writer, but maybe more who he is as himself? I love that question. I absolutely think that he does. Now, if you're interested in Lewis on seeing, you certainly want to read his essay, Meditation in a Tool Shed. The Fox in Into We Have Faces speaks of writing, and he says, to say the thing you really mean, the whole of it, and nothing else, that child is the true art and joy of words. I think that what Lewis wanted us to do, whether we're thinking about medieval literature or about God or about ourselves or um, about a wardrobe and a lion and a witch, I think that what he wanted us to do is see things more clearly. That's why he he uses so many different examples. That's what mere Christianity is all about. I think that Lewis's one blind spot, and isn't it true of all of us, is himself. And I think that maybe he didn't see himself as clearly as perhaps Troy Davidman did. He wasn't at all dishonest, but he presented a public face and had his own private world, and he was a very private person. And I think that she really did kind of reach inside of him and help him to see clearly. There's even a couple of poems about it. His love for her allowed him to write what he did. I absolutely think that not only could he not have written it before he was a Christian because he didn't understand the depths of divine love, 
the love of God for every human, which Lewis calls the intolerable compliment that God really sees and loves us. And I spent some time with the famous communication scholar Stephen Beebe uh, in his home, and we spent a couple of days traipsing through all of the biographies, the letters, the contemporary accounts of Lewis, of his friends, of his family members. And then later I've done some work at the Marion E. Wade Center, which has got this amazing uh, repository of all things Lewis and Tolkien and many others. And I spent some time in their oral history, and I found the traces that Lewis falls in love with Joy Davidman by 1955. And whether it's Warney or Chattanooga Walsh, people are saying, oh, everybody could see what was going to happen, you know, or there was marriage in the air. This is two years before Lewis marries her at the bedside. Yes. And in our last episode, you said he couldn't have written a book about love until he met love. I just love that. So let's flip over to Bandersnatch, because that is a book written by Diana pavlik Glyer who gives us an entirely new view into how Lewis loved joy. It's Azusa Pacific University honors professor Diana Pavlek Glyer, who spent 23 years reading every book by every inkling, all 365 books by all 19 inklings, every letter, every poem, and then she imagined in print what it would be like to be a fly on the wall in these meetings of the inklings. And she's looked incredibly deeply and written incredibly well about the role of collaboration in the Inklings. So she did this first in a book called The Company They Keep, C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien as Writers in Community. And then she's recently put out a book called um, Bandersnatch, C.S. Lewis, J.R.R. Tolkien, and the Creative Collaboration of the Inklings. And so she offers a model of collaboration that happened with them. Diana talks about the seven roles of the Inklings and how Joy Davidman met all of them. Tell us about that. Well, anything good I think about Joy Davidman I got from Diana Glyer's article. She's brilliant on this, and she is one of the few scholars who really give her the credit that she deserves both as a collaborator on Till We Have Faces and just her her general role in Lewis's life. So in her book about how the Inklings collaborated, she points to seven different things that they do, and they're corresponding statements. Um, Collaborators resonate. That is, they say, I understand what you're trying to do. They praise hey, this is really good. They encourage. You have what it takes. They pressure. Finish this. You can see this encouraging and pressuring is what Lewis did to help Tolkien finish The Lord of the Rings. They model. Look, here's what worked for me. They oppose. That isn't working. And then they edit. Try this instead. And so this is what the Inklings were doing informally, kind of organically, holistically in the meetings of the Inklings. They were resonating, praising, encouraging, pressuring, modeling, opposing, and editing. But when the Inklings stop in 1949, they go on meeting, they go on being friends, but as a club, as a meeting, as a group, the Inklings kind of stop in in late 49. I think that that left Lewis wide open to find another collaborator. And when Joy Davidman moves to England in 1953, when she begins to visit frequently in 54 and especially 55, and when she moves to Oxford, I think that I'm kind of standing on the shoulder of of the giant of the work of Diana Glyer. But one of the things that I'm working on in my book is a way of looking at Joy Davidman as occupying all seven of these collaborative roles with Lewis. And fundamentally, I think that in the 50s, Joy Davidman became C.S. Lewis's own personal inkling. 
not only did she become all four loves, but also all that the entire group of Inklings were to him. This is one of Joy Davidman's wonderful sonnets, love sonnets, to Lewis. This is, um, Don King numbers it as, as 36 out of the 45 sonnets. And apparently, if we can trust them from internal evidence, that these kind of reflected their conversations about their love, her love for him and his affection and friendship, but not love for her. You'll read the sonnet for us later, but I know it ends with, And kiss you at my leisure. Why, my lad, you might forget the color of my hair. One of the things that seems to come up in conversation between them is how Lewis preferred blondes. Now we know that he was had some kind of relationship with Mrs. Moore and the surviving pictures of her. He lived with her for most of his life, and he ended up calling her his mother. But there's some controversy among scholars as to whether or not they were something closer early on. Well, she has blonde hair. Lewis uh, maintained a long friendship with Ruth Pitter, and Don King can speak uh, brilliantly about that. And Ruth Pitter was also blonde. And so apparently this is kind of a, a topic of open conversation with them. And one of the reasons that Lewis says to Joy, you know, I just, it just won't work, uh, you know, because I prefer blondes. Um, in fact, Joy has a sonnet that's called Gentlemen Prefer. And uh, two or three times in her sonnets, she talks about being blonde including in this sonnet. But I think the key of this is how Joy sees Lewis as kind of a frozen adolescent. He meets Mrs. Moore and starts living with her when he's 19. And then she dies in 1951, right at the beginning of his relationship with Joy Davidman. I think that Lewis becoming a Christian and living with Mrs. Moore both kind of allowed him to put up this kind of frozen front and protect himself from the dangers of love. And of course, we know in, in The Four Loves that the only place we can be free from the dangers and perturbations of love is hell. But of course, with the dying of his mother, love, especially love from women, had been not a very trustworthy thing in Lewis's life. That's all of that kind of background to this wonderful sonnet that Joy Davidman writes. She says, The monstrous glaciers of your innocence are more than I can climb. I might have braved platoons of dragons or a fiery fence, but walls of ice defeat me, being saved more by childishness than chastity. You might remember merely to enliven your prayerful nights that hell, for some, may be a colder, not a warmer place than heaven. Here, Joy is evoking the Dantean image of the freezing cold hell. And she says that he's protecting himself more by childishness than chastity, his defense against her, or maybe her approaches to him. And so here's this last stanza that just kills me. Oh, my Antarctica my newfound land of woman-killing frost. But could I dare more than the least touch of a casual hand? Could I but come upon you in your bed and kiss you at my leisure? Well, my lad, you might forget the color of my hair. Ah, so in your humble opinion, why Joy? He's had all these other relationships, and he was in his 60s before he married. Why now? That's the $64,000 question. He didn't have a bunch of relationships. He had some, I would call them mild epistolary flirtations. 
And you may want to jot that phrase down and ask Don King whether or not I'm right. Lewis didn't really have relationships with women. Mrs. He lived with Mrs. Moore. Many scholars think that they were romantically involved. Uh, some important scholars think that they weren't. Nevertheless, she was there, and coincidentally or not, Lewis never brought a girlfriend home, never really dated anybody, never seemed to even entertain the idea of being anything but a bachelor. But then once uh, Mrs. Moore, he called her Minto, once she died, it's not very long before he and Joy start their relationship. It's interesting, too. People think of Lewis as this kind of lifelong bachelor in his ivory tower alone. But from the time he was, before he was even 20, he lived with a woman and her daughter in his house until his da the daughter Maureen got married in 1940. And he lived with Mrs. Moore all of her life, puts her in a nursing home in 1951, visits her every day. Then she dies. In 52, meets Joy Davidman in person. In 57, moves her into the kilns. So there are only like five or six years when Lewis isn't living in that house with a woman. So you can call him a bachelor if you want, but he really was more of a householder. And that description of her early in Grief Observed, what was she not to me? And if you look at that description, he describes how she's his wife and his daughter and his mother and his lover, but she also he also calls her my trusty companion, my trusty comrade, right? This is a male military term, right? One of the best friends and I have had good one. Or all any, she means all that any other friend has meant to me and I have had good ones. Okay, so friendship is usually male with him. And so he calls her a bunch of these female terms and then later says, recalls in a grief observed, that uh, he praised her masculine qualities and she put a stop to that by praising his feminine ones. But she embodies all of those things. I think that she did what nobody else could do. I think that she loved him. But then I think that she overcame his Irish and culturally British reserve. And I think that her, her chutzpah, her boldness from her background and just the indefatigable nature of her personality, I think she came and got him, right, in a way that nobody else would have ever done. Don't you think? Yes. And their firm bond of friendship that started with letters and a passion for the same things in life. Listen, they'd grown up both reading the same kinds of books. At 12 years old, they both read George MacDonald's Fantasties, 17 years apart, but at 12 years old. That's the book Lewis said baptized his imagination. Both Lewis and Joy moved from atheism to theism to Christianity, and they both had so many of the same questions and beliefs. So that's kind of the secret road of friendship. It's a shared passion. And you're right, Lewis and Joy really kind of discover that early. So here's what C.S. Lewis says about um, friendship and the possibility of romance in 1960 in the friendship chapter of The Four Loves. When the two people who thus discover that they are on the same secret road are of different sexes, the friendship which arises between them will very easily pass, may pass in the first half hour, into erotic love. Indeed, unless they are physically repulsive to each other, or unless one or both already loves elsewhere, it is almost certain to do so sooner or later. The friendship which arises between them will very easily pass into erotic love. Let me clarify that what he means there is romantic love. Later in the book, Lewis refers to eros as the kind of falling in love swoony part and Venus as the physical or sexual component. So when he says erotic love, he's talking about kind of falling romantically in love. 
it may pass in the first half hour into erotic love. I think that's what happened with Joy Davidman. I think they were friends, and I think that at least upon meeting him, if not sooner, she kind of falls in love with him. And then he says, indeed, unless they are physically repulsive to each other, think about Jack preferring blondes, right? Or unless one or both already loves elsewhere, and at this point, Joy's marriage that was already failing, her marriage to Bill Gresham had not ended yet, right? So I think that Lewis's thought that he preferred blondes and Joy Davidman's continuing failing marriage were two things that kept that friendship from going into romantic love. Unless they're physically repulsive to each other, unless one or both already loves elsewhere, it is almost certain to do so sooner or later. And sooner or later is exactly what happened. And once Joy's marriage fell apart and finished falling apart, and that happened during 1952 while Joy was visiting C.S. Lewis, she got a letter from her ex-husband saying that he was in love with her cousin and was going to marry her. And then once Lewis, perhaps by the poetry, could be convinced that he could maybe like somebody who wasn't a blonde, I think it's very quick that they really realize that they fall in love with each other. But it doesn't start out at least for Jack, and perhaps for both of them, as romantic love, it starts out as friendship. But Lewis said, if we hadn't married, we would have been always together and we would have caused a scandal, right? And so that friendship was so intimate that others could see that that friendship had to be consummated in a romantic relationship. Then why do you think it took him so long, not only to really feel on that love, but to act on it? We can't know on this side of the grave, but he probably compartmentalized. It feels like his actions spoke much louder than his words. He was always making sure she was near. He wanted to work with her. He asked her opinion. He visited her. So why do you think he held the truth from himself? Why do you think he turned away from her when it was so evident? You know... I'm not altogether sure, and in some ways it would be presumptuous for me to hazard a guess, but, you know, presumptuous is my middle name, and so... Well, and that's what we're supposed to be doing. We're supposing. We're not saying this is the fact. We're supposing from the writings he's written, and you've read more of him than I could possibly do in the next decade. So what is this reticence that holds him back from what is so obvious? You know, I'm not sure how obvious it is to begin with. By the time Minto dies in 1951, Lewis is, let's see, he's born in, in 98. And so he's in his, what, late 50s, mid to late 50s. I think that he had kind of resigned himself that love wasn't going to come his way. He had so long, for whatever reason, excluded himself from the possibility of romantic love. And he wrote about romantic love because he read, of course, all of the best love poetry in the history of English literature. But I didn't think that he thought it was for him. I also think that it really took somebody as brash or as bold or as courageous. Imperious? Imperious, yeah. But I think that a lot of those words about Joy tend to negatively describe her. I think that she was just courageous, right? And there's that great quote that you pull out from your book that somebody just got tattooed to her arm, right? Yes. Somebody actually tattooed this on their arm. It's a quote Joy wrote in an essay in her book, Smoke on the Mountain. And it's this. If we should ever grow brave, what on earth would become of us? 
Yeah. And I think that it was that bravery. When you think of the word courage, which is all of the virtues at its testing point, Lewis says, you remember that Aslan whispers into Lucy's ear, courage, dear heart. And that the root of that word comes from corday, meaning have heart, right? And I think that courage is bound up inextricably with love. Incidentally, that's why it's not Lucy's bottle or flask, it's her cordial because it's her heart to heal that contains the medicine that she's given as a gift in the chronicle, in the line in which the wardrobe. But I think that that courage, that bravery, and you see that so often in her sonnets, right? I mean, she's bold about, you know, if I could just have you on my bed or, you know, I could dare more than just a, the slightest touch of my finger on your cuff, you know. But then she's in despair that he will ever, you know, love her. Oh, my soul will just be some place that you, tattered soul, you can wipe your boots on or whatever. And Don King points out how she kind of goes between this incredibly courage and this incredible despair. But I think that she had the courage to see him and to not fall for the front that he put up. And I think that front was authentic, but it was two-dimensional. And I think that Joy Davidman kind of saw him in a way that he had been longing to be seen all his life. And you think of his best friends. I mean, if you make a list, I come up with five or six. There's Warney, there's Tolkien, there's Charles Williams, there's Owen Barfield, there's Arthur Greaves. All of these see a piece of Lewis, but they don't see all of him. And I think that the sixth candidate for Lewis's best friend is Joy Davidman. She sees him, but then she can see his potential romantically, too. And I remember I was sitting in the kilns, Skyping with Don King, when he first was at the Wade Center reading these poems. And he read me a few, and he said, in his lovely uh, Southern drawl, he said, Andrew, I think we finally found somebody who lusted after C.S. Lewis. She saw him as an object of desire, not just an object of, of friendship. Now, Lewis, it's interesting. And whether or not the dates are true, George Sayer, God bless him, sometimes misses on some of the dates. But um, in his biography, Jack, he says about Lewis and falling in love, after one visit in 1955, Lewis remarked that if he were not a confirmed bachelor, Ruth Pitter would be the woman he would like to marry. One could have with her the kind of relationship described by Patmore in The Angel in the House, he said. It's not too late, I commented, says George Sayer. Oh, yes, it is, he said. I've burnt my boats. Then he began talking about something else. And I don't know what Jack meant by, in 1955, I couldn't marry Ruth Pitter, I've burnt my boats. I think one of the, the, the conquistadors did so that they wouldn't go back to Europe and they would fulfill their task in North America. They burnt all their boats so they couldn't return. This either means Lewis sees himself as a confirmed bachelor who, for whom it is too late to marry, and in 1955, he's 56, 57. Or perhaps he's already begun to, if not make a commitment to Joy Davidman, see that she perhaps has a romantic claim on her. Maybe if 1955 really is the date, maybe he's begun to realize that if he ever will marry, it's actually Joy Davidman. And Ruth Pitter never came for him the way that Joy Davidman did. And so I think that many could have maybe, see, well, I think few could have had the kind of friendship and the literary ability and the memory and the vivacious personality as, you know, certainly Ruth Pitter did and Joy Davidman. But I think Ruth waited for Jack to come to her, and Joy didn't wait at all. And I think the fact that she came and got him 
and melted the monstrous glaciers of his innocence. And seeing that frozen adolescence that was more trapped by his childishness than his chastity, that he didn't have any romantic experience. And Joy had <clears throat> a bit, <laughs> shall we say. I think that she knew the ways of men and women in a way that allowed her to come and get him. And had not somebody come and gotten him, I don't think he ever would have been gotten. Now, lots of people portray that as Joy Davidman being a gold digger or trying to, you know, force her way and how rude she was. I think that the evidence gives that the lie because Lewis and Warney, and you don't fool those boys, you don't dupe those two men. They were deliriously happy with her and they adored her. I don't think anybody gets anything over on Lewis. And he dedicated Till We Have Faces to Joy. And then there is a line in the epigraph that he separates from the dedication to Joy. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, absolutely. There's a line, an, epi an epigraph in, in Till We Have Faces that says, it's from John Donne, love is too young to know what conscience is. And I'm still kind of grappling with the meaning of all of that. But he's talking about love. Love is too young to know what conscience is. And then he dedicates the book to Joy Davidman. I think that that's maybe the sop instead of putting her name on the cover. There's some evidently some discussion from his publisher, Jock Gibb, at Bless. And so May 2nd, 1956, they composed the book in 55. It goes, it's about to come out. May 2nd, 56, he writes to Gibb. And he says, I leave it entirely to your judgment where the quotation, love is too young to know what conscience is, should come, provided, and then in parentheses he says, a point that has only just occurred to me, provided it comes as far as possible from the dedication, and that dedication is to Joy Davidman. Otherwise, though the lady would not, the public might think they had some highly embarrassing relation to each other, exclamation point. So here's Lewis saying, keep separated as far as possible the words Joy Davidman and the words love, because although she wouldn't think that they have an embarrassing relation, the public might make some conclusions. And I think that he's worried that people would think that he has fallen in love with Joy Davidman, which is what he had done. You don't worry about that unless you know it might actually be true. The crazy thing about the timing of this letter is it's May 2nd, 1956. Nine days earlier, Lewis and Joy go into the registry office and get married. Now, it's the civil marriage, and they live in different houses. This is not the bedside marriage, the religious ceremony. He married, But he is married to her, and then nine days later, he's like, oh, don't let anybody think that, you know, that there's this, you know. He called it an embarrassing relation. Yes, He's thinking that the public might think that, but he says the lady would not think that there's an embarrassing relation to, to each other. I think at this point it's an open secret, but he's still being very deliberate and very compartmentalized. And, you know, we know about the months during which they were married. You know, there's this great story that they're sitting in, in the house that Lewis finds and rents for her on Old High Street, a mile away from the kilns. I've walked from the kilns to her house. They're there until all hours, you know, they're there until 11 o'clock at night. And at one point, they're talking about it. And, um, and Joy says, you know, the irony is that people think that we're unmarried and up to all sorts of nonsense, when in fact, we are married and up to absolutely nothing at all. <laughs> That's our Joy. She tells it like it is. 
some of the biographers talk about during this period, she begins to press her rights as a wife on him. And so I think that he kind of has this growing realization that it's not just a marriage of convenience. It's not just a registry office thing to extend her, his citizenship to her. It is, in some ways, the first fruits of a formalization of what will actually happen. And you know, Patty, I didn't think about it until just this very moment. But Lewis had two marriages. He also had two conversions. He converts to theism, but isn't sure what it really means when it comes to the heart of love, Jesus Christ. And then a year and a half later, he has a conversion to Christianity. And in the same way, he has a marriage to Joy Davidman, and then several months later, he marries her again, but he marries her religiously. So sometimes maybe for somebody as intellectual and as, as you know, kind of with his formal thought categories, it takes a while for Lewis to realize the true emotional and soul-stirring impact of a major change in his life. And I think that his conversion and his marriage are the two major changes in his life. Oh, Andrew, that is so... Utterly fascinating. Two conversions, two marriages. Yes, it takes a bit of time with Lewis, does it not? This seems the perfect place to end, that his conversion and his marriage, the two major changes in his life, altering everything about his work and his heart, echo each other. Thank you so much. Make sure to subscribe to Behind the Scenes of Becoming Mrs. Lewis wherever you get your podcasts. You can find the novel and audiobook wherever books are sold. Published by HarperCollins, Thomas Nelson. You've been listening to the Behind the Scenes of Becoming Mrs. Lewis podcast. Copyright 2019 by Thomas Nelson. Based on the book, Becoming Mrs. Lewis. The Improbable Love Story of Joy Davidman and C.S. Lewis, copyright 2018 by Thomas Nelson. Poetry selections by Joy Davidman and C.S. Lewis, read by Liz Hill and Simon Bubb. No portion of this recording may be used without the express written consent of the publisher. For more information on the people and stories featured in this episode, please visit becomingmrslewispodcast.com. This program was engineered by Sarah Voorhees Wendell at Kingswood Studios in Nashville, Tennessee, and produced by Jolene Bartow and Gabe Wicks.